Hello, listeners. This is Kyle Munson, and welcome to Journalists Are My Heroes. This is the podcast that talks to working journalists and journalism thinkers everywhere, because we're at a moment when the very notion of what it means to be a journalist has gotten lost among all our partisan bickering on social media. So please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor. This week, I'm talking with one of the most active academic minds in the journalism space, Nikki Usher. Now, one of the things we talked about is her look ahead to 2019 and what she worries will be national media's three sins that will undermine public trust even more. You'll also hear us talk about the ongoing struggle to see better representation of people of color in newsrooms. Now, that's something I witnessed throughout my career firsthand. I personally advocated for more diversity And I would argue that journalism's economic crisis has only undermined some of the progress that had been made. At one point in the interview, Nikki says, just make your newsrooms more diverse in recommending an action item that is one of the first and simplest moves that any organization could make to to help improve coverage. Now, in recent days, we've seen this issue flare up again with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to her two-plus million Twitter followers criticizing CBS News for not including a single African-American on his 2020 election team. That's just one example of how this was such a timely podcast conversation. So let's get to it. Hello, uh, journalists are my heroes, listeners. This is Kyle Munson. And typically on this podcast, what I do is I talk to working journalists. Um, The whole point is I'm saying that we need to somehow reconnect the modern media audience with the whole notion of what it means to be a journalist. But I wanted to get Nikki Usher on the podcast today because I first crossed paths with her several years ago when she was busy talking to scores of journalists around the country, and she still does that on a regular basis. She's an associate professor at both George Washington University and the University of Illinois, and I'm talking to her right now uh, as she's in Illinois. Hey, Nikki, thanks for taking a little bit of time to chat. Oh, thanks, Kyle. Always great to, to catch up. Yeah, I, you know, I obviously I could tell that you you love journalism. It's uh, it's front and center in your life right now. Where did you end up? You know, we crossed paths. I was working at the Des Moines Register, and you were traveling around the country looking at all of these large metro daily newspapers selling off their real estate, uh, like we sold off ours. Yes. How did? What was the lasting impression that that whole phase of your work and research uh, left you with? So, uh. What I came away with was that place is one of the most important and not talked about enough parts of this whole uh, conversation about what's happening in journalism today. Mm. And, you know, I started noodling about the importance of place when I was looking at these news buildings and um, began writing a book proposal. And then the election happened that that 2016 one, you know, they, oh, yeah, nobody's yeah. talking about that anymore, no right? About that. Yeah. yeah, no. Um, and, and so it really sort of became clear to me that thinking hard about how the place-based realignment in the U S but also the place-based realignment of journalists was really important if we're going to connect these questions of authority and trust and economics all together with the future of journalism. So I think that's kind of, uh, where I ended up after we last chatted, um, you know, 
Yeah. And and you started down that path because you had a really a real emotional connection to a journalism place yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in 2012, uh, I saw a picture of a friend of mine on Facebook. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And it was this picture of her. Uh, and it said last person in the Philadelphia Inquirer newsroom. And, and this, uh, you know, it's not, uh, I mean, not unusual because uh, Kristen was generally the last person in the newsroom, but she was actually the last person in the newsroom working because the Philadelphia Inquirer was a about to, you know, close its building and, and close up shop. And, you know, as a young journalist, um, for my, you know, 90 seconds of being one, uh, <laughs> you know, I was at the Philadelphia Inquirer and, you know, the dream was to make it downtown, to work in this ornate building that was filled with history. And, you know, that was like the sign of success. And so it just hit me so hard when, you know, I mean, these, they call it the Tower of Truth. I don't think anybody actually calls it that. Wow. Uh, but when this like beautiful, massive testament to journalism was just there, just weren't enough people to work there anymore to justify the space. Um, and so, you know, I just yeah, that, I mean, it sort of set me down down uh, where I am now, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, that resonates with me. So, as you know, I mean, I spent 24 years at the Des Moines Register and a, a legacy newspaper building downtown of about a century, um, and it was kind of a slow death there too. The presses moved out in 2000 to a new facility south of town near the airport, and then you visited as we were making our transition in 2012. Um, right. Out of all the journalists are out today. Uh, it's redeveloped lofts, and the basement where the press is once churned now is a software firm. Hey! So, so there wow. you go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that is, I guess, you were taking a really hard look at mainstream media, legacy media, whatever, and I noticed a piece you did recently, which maybe brings us to the modern current moment in journalism you wrote something about the three sins of national media what uh i guess everything spurred that but what specifically spurred that uh well so neiman lab does this usual thing every year that's um uh you know what what are the predictions for the future of journalism for the coming year um and i've been part of that pretty much every year that the Neiman Lab has run it in recent memory. And, um, you know, I spent seven years living and working in Washington and I'm still pretty connected to DC. And, um, when you talk to ordinary people, you know, that thing that journalists are supposed to do for a living, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, you realize that the frustration is not with local media. You know, people aren't saying, oh, gosh, I hate that guy Kyle Munson when he was an Iowa columnist. I mean, he just didn't care about the state. That's <laughs> never what you hear, right? That's never what you hear. What what you hear from people is like, oh, you know, Jake Tapper, blah, 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 blah. Or, I can't believe the New York Times did blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, all of national media is biased. And well, the question is why? And I think that there are these mistakes that scholars like myself have notice, you know, and and for generations preceding me, um, that, you know, come up in journalism as kind of like these fatal flaws, you know, I mean, you can think of just a couple off the top of your head, right? Like Mm -hmm. the horse race, right? We're focused on the horse race, you know, focus on characters rather than underlying policy, you know, looking at bad news as sort of the starting point. I mean, you, you, you journalists know what these are. Um, these are not, but when it comes to national journalism, uh, 
it, 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 the, the resonance of some of these sort of enduring critiques of media um, seem even more important now, given the current social and political context. Yeah, um, yeah the stakes yeah. are higher and, and um, yeah. it, the more, it seems like, yeah, more is at stake every day. So I love these three sins. Um, you have as number one, what, what's going to happen, you fear, is that number one, journalists are going to make the story about themselves. Yes. And uh, and so it's like it, it's it's they're going to well, it's kind of like focusing on the horse race in politics. Maybe they're going to focus on the freedom fight in their own industry or on the political front lines. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing is, um, sanctimony is not attractive uh, to anybody. <laughs> right. And, and the thing is, is like your numbers, your trust numbers, journalists, like especially among uh, Republicans, 14 percent, you know, among Democrats, it's a little better. It's something like, you know, 46 percent. But most people in America don't like you, you know. And and so, you know, most people don't trust you. And so your crusade as a truth fighter is something that wakes you up every day in the morning. But it's certainly not what most people in the United States think about your role here. Um, and so I think that, that uh, there's a real disconnect. Um, this is an important conversation. It's important for journalists to talk about a free press. I'm not saying that that's not important, but it's a conversation that happens within one community that doesn't really need to you know, be the driving force of the relationship that the national media has with the president. Yeah, I, um, I, I think that's really the the concern. I like the uh, the line you used in the piece. Uh, Sanctimony is annoying, as is its closely related sentiment, smugness. So yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that makes a case for a little bit more of the uh, Midwest uh, Iowa nice approach to coverage <laughs> or not, but. I guess we'll see. So number two, you have uh, journalists are going to continue to insist or you say believe that facts will change people's minds. Yes. Um, This rational actor model of a deliberative public should be considered dead at this point. Yeah. Was that too much, by the way? Was that overly academic? Should I have well, made that more normal word? Well, you know what? It, no, it made me think, you know, I, it really resonated with me in terms of I've uh, I've done a, a lot of work or study uh, looking at racism through the years. Right. And this yeah. is kind of a fatal flaw when people think you can educate away all racism or yeah. you know, if they're if this yeah. if they're confronted with their bias or they're confronted with the facts, they will no longer be racist. But it's not that simple. Yeah, I mean, you know, so much of the conceit of modern journalism is if we bring people information, uh, our job is to tell people what they don't know and equip them to make better decisions for themselves. And this indeed is is a noble philosophical uh, raison d'etre for journalism. Um, and in fact, you know, that it, that is sort of an ideal vision what journalism does. And when it works right, you know, when you see those gotcha investigative pieces that really cause change, that's when it's working, right? When mm-hmm. that, when there's like some systemic social issue or some wrong that journalists point out and can draw attention to and cause change, that's when that model works its best, right? But when it comes to like deeply held ingrained beliefs that people have about politics, these are really hard to change. I mean, everything we know from political science is that if we can shift, you know, it's like two to five percent of voters are undecided mm-hmm. for any major election, right? And so what you're fighting for as a politician is like that two to five percent, 
right? Those are the people who you're actually able to persuade that will make the difference, right? And and so, um, I guess the the what we've learned from this whole fact checking research, um, because if you for, have forgotten before there was a moral panic about fake news, there was this big fact checking thing that mm. happened for a while, right? Mm. There was a huge trend. Yeah, there were entire <laughs> like trend. I had colleagues that was their entire job for some time. And yeah. and it's a it's an important job, but the facts on their own, right, are not are not going to convince people. Um, there's a lot of research to suggest that people can accept the fact that they're wrong, that they are factually incorrect, but they don't care. Right. <laughs> I think that there, there's a, you know, some politicians that uh, would certainly put themselves in this category. It's sort of the spirit rather than the, the actuality of, of what is, you know, is true versus what is felt. And, and uh, so the breakdown, you know, the journalism that works right to right wrongs works well when everybody can see that there's a real wrong, right? When right. journalism shows that there's something truly broken, that these kids haven't eaten in these foster homes and there are like 70 of them and the city of Miami does a really terrible job, you know, making sure that these kids are safe. That's mm -hmm. something most people on a moral consciousness are like, that sucks. Right. <laughs> you know, like there, there's, 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 you know, it, it, it goes way past any ingrained belief you may have about foster care or whatever it is. It's like kids shouldn't, should eat, kids should eat. Right. Like this is something we can all agree on. I would hope. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, or, or, you know, kids shouldn't be abused, you know, um, like that seems like, right. But it doesn't, this sort of, um, you know, day-to-day -day systemic outrage of this fact is wrong, this fact is wrong, and therefore you should believe us. You're seeing the world the wrong way. It just, it doesn't penetrate. And as people have gotten more and more polarized and more and more partisan, um, this gets harder and harder to do. So, I mean, it's really interesting if you look at the history of, um, uh, modern partisanship mm -hmm. in the 40s 50s and 60s there really wasn't a huge difference between republicans and democrats um and you know you can probably the best example is like eisenhower he wasn't even sure whether he should run as a republican or a democrat for president <laughs> right like there really just wasn't that space and and so there are a lot of historical reasons why we've become more polarized but all in all the short end of the the way to say this is that facts aren't enough to change people's minds. And, and the thing is, most people don't want to change their minds. So you've got to figure out how to get your message across in a way that recognizes this fundamental problem yeah. <laughs> with the efficacy of narrative. Well, and I've also, I feel like I've noticed in, in recent weeks as, you know, this fact check industry or trend has, the statistics keep mounting and adding up. And it's not as if you do that, that you put every the argument into a neat box because now there are people on both sides who are saying but wait a second how do you what about when you decide to fact check you know uh right. and you know hey why aren't you adding up more uh right. truthful statements you're just pointing out false statements and how, right. do, how do you keep all the players right. equal <laughs> so it's it, it opens up uh, the can of worms is still there Right. Well, I mean, you know, I think that the biggest problem journalists have is I call it the object objectivity police. When my students, uh, you know, start thinking this way, it's like the objectivity police going to come get you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, journalists have a really hard time admitting their own subjectivity um, that, yeah, actually, the choices that we make are then what 
just, you know, ends up coming out as news. And it doesn't mean that journalists make up news, but they construct the news. They can help construct our social reality. Like, journalists make the news. They don't fake the news. And part of making the news is deciding, being that filter, being that gatekeeper of what is and isn't important. And to say that there's no subjective um, weighing of what is right, what is what is more important than something else is, mm-hmm. is just is just not i mean that would be we would be robots we wouldn't be people right Right. um and so i think the the biggest problem that journalists have is not being comfortable with the fact that the view from nowhere doesn't make any sense because we're all coming from a starting point right i mean this idea that you can kind of you know we're all in a place where we all have a particular background you can't you can't assume this omniscient sort of perspective and presume that there's no subjectivity involved so right. that's that's sort of my my kind of if i could change one thing about american journalism today yeah it would right. just be like look i know you're trying to say that democracy dies in darkness as a recall back to some of this like trivia point in the watergate conversations but nobody in america is seeing it that way um and most people in your newsroom don't like Donald Trump. Like, own it, Washington Post. I think people would, you know, like, just own it. Just own it. And I think that if you, you know, it's sort of like when you're talking to your friends and you're like, I, you know, I am just a Dodgers fan. And there's nothing you're going to say to change the fact that I'm a Dodgers fan. And so whenever you talk stats, right, you're like, oh, well, you know, I know you're a Dodgers fan, but, you know, you can surely see, right? And and it's sort of like recognizing the, the sort of like the partisanship the subjectivity, um, that would be sort of the one thing I, I would change, would be an open conversation about what we what journalists believe and yeah. then what that means for the kind of news that they produce. Because then everybody knows, you know, everybody, we're on, we're on an equal starting point. Yeah, no, it's going to take uh, many episodes of this podcast to tease out all the threads that are, <laughs> that are in that. But it's yeah. true. And, you know, the view from nowhere uh, debate that Jay Rosen has also been you know, famously tied to right. for, for a long time and still um, talks about um, it's kind of a, a daily debate on social media still. Uh, I don't know. I, mean, yeah. I came from a history of I was an opinion columnist, uh, uh-huh. you know, kind of a reporting opinion columnist for many years. And so I've that, that, that what you're saying always has felt natural to me. And even I don't know, I guess I came from a history. I had an editor tell me once that, uh, you know, it, you, you, you strive for objectivity knowing that you never really reach it. But at least what you do as a journalist is you have this transparent process that you pursue so that if somebody else was following the same story in the same way, they would at least arrive at more or less the same place. And, yeah. you know, so it doesn't. So I guess I, I, I kind of came up in the industry not really thinking about a view from nowhere, but in sort of, you know, trying to find a transparent, yeah. n- uh, you know, knowing somewhat method. flawed method. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think that uh, Tom Rosen, the Rosenstiel and Kovach book, like they try to, I mean, they, they try to say like objectivity is a method. It's like, you know, the scientific method, the objective method of journalism, but it's not a philosophical sort of ideal that's possible nor even desired. And I think, right. you know, so 
yeah, that <laughs> that gets us a long way from uh, stop doing these fact checks and thinking they're going to change everybody's mind. That's right. Yeah. Well, so we just went on a journalism nerd, uh, just tangent yeah. there, but that's fine. All right. So to, yeah. to wrap this up to your third sin uh, that you're a, uh, you fear about national media in the year ahead, they're going to continue to amplify conspiracies, bad actors and moral panics. Now, yeah. when I read that, this sounds to me like. I mean, it's sort of like the Facebook problem, too, right? Yeah. You have these open channels, and then all of a sudden they find out, oh, wait, we have to try to be editors now. Yeah. Um, hard work. I mean, I, <laughs> it's really hard work. I think the thing is, is that, right, and it kind of stems from this whole idea of, like, the rational actor thing where if we show people stuff, they're going to come to good decisions if we just give them the right information. But sometimes um, that doesn't work right and sometimes it doesn't work equally across all subjects and i think the issue is is uh you know when you amplify things that are fringe through the mainstream media you legitimize them um you know so news organizations have to be super careful journalists have to be super careful about what you know who their sources are um, and who they choose you know what alt-right person they choose to talk to or what fringe conspiracy and i make the point in the article um that or in the neiman piece that like the flat earthers i mean like that that you know journal i remember being in newsrooms and you know you'd get some press release and you wouldn't go cover a convention just because there was a convention in town but <laughs> the flat earthers are this super were this super fringe movement and yes they're absolutely fascinating but in continuing to cover flat earthers the the flat earth sort of proponents have grown steadily right so you've yeah. just gone and amplified this um you know over and over and over um and there's also this thing in social science called the belief echo so once you start to um my colleague emily thorson uh at syracuse that's sort of her term um but the idea right is you hear something and if you hear it enough you kind of start to think maybe it's true right so mm -hmm. the deep state stuff i think is is a really good example right because we all know that in the back of our heads that there's this whole security state that is going on, that whole military industrial complex. And the truth is most of us have no idea what that is. And I think a lot of us would prefer not to, like that means they're doing a good job. Right. Right. So you hear enough about the deep state and you're like, yeah, yeah, I could see that. You know? Well, and there's just, and there's been just enough valid conspiracy through the years right. to sort of seed people's imagination. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, the, the JFK stuff, sorry. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Um, but no, but, and, and so, you know, when you choose to amplify hate, when you choose to amplify fringe beliefs, you're legitimizing them, you're firing up all of those supporters, you're giving them recognition, you're giving them ammunition, and you're exposing all of these people um, to something that maybe they just didn't need to know about. Um, and it's the same as true as like, so some fake news story will happen and then journalists will be like, oh my gosh, there was this fake news story. And I'm like, I didn't see that fake news story. Oh, until the New York Times wrote about it. Right. Like, right. Um, so that's sort of the, the real issue with all of this is you've got to be really responsible about what and when to choose to amplify bad actors. I mean, um, you can think about like, and I think, you know, journalists have self-corrected in some of this, like the, the mass shooting coverage, I think has really started to change. Um, there's a lot more consciousness about not focusing on the 
name of the person and the story of that person and focusing more on the victims and why the bump stocks debate took on such resonance because we weren't talking about the shooter. I can't even think of the name of the shooter off mm-hmm. the top of my head. That's a good thing, right? Right. Because we know that valorizing shooters can lead to the same kind of copycat thing that you see with suicides, right? And so, so I guess, you know, there is a possibility for course correction, but we do know that, you know, journalists do a good job of amplifying the bad guys sometimes and, and giving them more legitimation than they ought to have. Well, and, and also where this is all happening on deadline, usually extreme deadline uh, yeah. often. And, you know, with the bottoming out of the current commercial, uh, you know, the industry's current model, that could, it's hard to separate this from the economics of it, right? So that could be yeah. a result. There was, in recent years, there's been this this ra- rabid chase uh, for the digital metrics, still trying to replace ad revenue. And if that is yeah. bottoming out and there's eventually, I don't know, some shift to a utopia, let's just pretend and that's a Candyland world right now. But that would give time for some of these, uh, you know, ethics to take hold that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say. That's a really big can of worms. But I I think that um, as we start to shape campaign 2020 coverage right there are a couple of things and this is sort of the something that lies with the editor and not the reporter i think that lies with the people sort of shaping you know what you're going to cover um and and some of that is like you know a consciousness that you gotta be really choosy about the polls that you choose to cover and how you choose to cover them and what they're actually telling you Right. That's something that doesn't require freaking out about a deadline or an insane rush or a competition to internalize. That is something completely actionable. Right. True. Um, Other completely actionable things. Right. News organizations have started to do a better job on their homepages of separating opinion from editorial. But if you look at the platform press report through the uh, Tau Center, like, news like the news organization have to think about maybe like 15 different distribution channels and when stuff comes in on apple news i know that i don't even know sometimes whether i'm reading news or somebody's opinion and that makes a difference i think people want to know if they're reading somebody's take versus reading an accounting of what happened and it's sort of part of that conversation we had about being clear about the bias, being clear about where you're coming from, it's really hard to figure that out. So if this is actionable, do better tags on your distributed content about whether people are reading a reported piece or a take. Yeah. No, I I agree. I mean, that's still the implementation of it still seems hugely murky to me. But I I do agree with you in in theory. Uh, Boy, that that is another can of worms. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, but it's like what what are you know, and I was talking about this with uh, with Jay Rosen today, actually, like if we could look at the times where journalists have done a really good job rethinking about how to do their jobs better. Science communication, this mass shooting stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. are there other even sort of climate change LGBT stuff you you really rarely see a homophobe as like the necessary quote in a story about same-sex marriage anymore you mm-hmm. know there have been conscious changes made and so the question is what are the conscious changes that people can easily make in their heads to maybe make some of these course corrections I mean 
maybe one of those things is to just not go on TV, <laughs> right? Like if you're a new, if you're a, a journalist who's working for for um, a tech space medium, um, maybe and you're, you're a reporter, maybe giving an expert commentary on CNN isn't the best choice. You can make a lot of money, but but does that is that you know should there be some lines in the sand that you know that that's a problem. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, and I think that this is a a really important conversation worth really starting to have. And also, I mean, something that's super actionable is like, just make your newsrooms more diverse. I mean, that, that is like the single easiest actionable thing to correct blind spots is to bring in people who aren't from the places you are, aren't from the schools you went to and don't look like you. That's actionable, right? That has nothing to do with deadline. And so I feel like, you know, if there's one thing that you can do, um, maybe that's the best one because that will change coverage. It will. Yeah, no, I mean, from within the industry, I saw that there was a, there was a serious effort to do that and it kind of crescendoed in nineties and then began to erode as the, you know, as the economic underpinnings uh, started to 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 wash away, but uh, no. So uh, you've given me an agenda here for several more episodes, Nikki. So Good. I, thanks. So I will look forward to uh, reaching out again in the near future. Sure. So what sure. what what's occupying one last thing? What's occupying you this semester? What are you talking to journalists or students about? Uh, and and what do you hope to get from twenty nineteen? Uh, well, um, right now I am working on this book about place, um, and I'm trying to kind of connect the narrative between sort of the history of American sectionalism with what's going on in terms of the place-based realignment in journalism. Mm. Uh, so that's sort of one thing. But the other thing I'm taking a hard look at that's a little more concrete is, um, kind of the way that uh, the digital economics really disfavor anybody that isn't in proximity to somebody making the technology that's driving the digital economy. Hmm. Um, And so what that means is, right, Chartbeat's a great example. Chartbeat is in New York and SF, mostly in New York. And Chartbeat has local news outreach, but that local news outreach is like, this is how you use our platform. This is how you optimize our content for your, you know, this is how you optimize your content to succeed on our platform. But those metrics are being imposed by people who work at a metrics company in a big city, right? Mm -hmm. Those may not make sense for local outs, you know, and and sort of other big things like platforms, right? Facebook um, or Google, Google News. Think about how many times the Des Moines Register had a story first, then the New York Times wrote that same story and your search results just like disappeared, right? Right. So there are these huge problems with kind of the way that algorithms amplify bigger, larger news sites over ones that may have better information. and that there's already a big footing problem that happens within the industry, but it's also amplified on these platforms. So those sorts of questions of like digital scale and digital power are things I'm thinking a lot about right now. Oh, that's cool. Well, I'll definitely want to talk to you about that. Um, the, <laughs> the digital big footing and uh, I don't know what, yeah, the, the tech, tech, the the tech desert angle on the news desert, I guess. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That definitely resonates with my Midwestern consciousness. So, <laughs> well, hey, Nikki, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. Have uh, have have a great start to 2019, and we'll okay. look forward to catching up with you uh, as soon as we can.
super and uh i'm gonna you know enjoy the the podcast as it goes forward so thank you so much for chatting with me appreciate it yeah you bet it's a work in progress so uh treat me kindly online all right yeah for sure thanks okay